But I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would now, to Galatians chapter 1. And this evening in our study, we're going to begin a series of messages that cover verses 11 down through 24 at the end of the chapter. And I've entitled these messages, God's Gospel. Uh, Let me read the scriptures to you and join with me as we read tonight. And I'm going to give you a little bit of an introduction after that. And then we'll touch some on the first part of this message. It's going to take about, I think, five weeks for us to get through this entire section. But if you look at Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse number 11, the Apostle Paul says, But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man... Neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. For ye have heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it, and profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in mine own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb, and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood, neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me. But I went into Arabia and returned again unto Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him fifteen days." But other of the apostles saw I none, save James, the Lord's brother. Now the things which I write unto you, behold, before God I lie not. Afterwards I came into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and was unknown by face unto the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they had heard only that he which persecuted us in times past now preacheth the faith which once he destroyed." And they glorified God in me. I think that this is just really a very interesting part of this epistle. Because this gives us some background information into this man, Paul, who is called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul had this driving passion to reach people with the gospel. So much so that he said that whether he lived or he died, that his life belonged to the Lord. And we recall the comments that Paul made in Philippians when he said, According to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now, also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul is what you would call a prototype Christian. Uh, he, according to God's commands, I mean, what God tells a Christian to do, he's the prototype Christian. God says, Jesus said, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. And he was as close to that as you could get, and as close to what the prophet Micah said in the Old Testament. He has showed thee, O man, what is good and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. Now, interestingly, Paul thought that he obeyed both of those commandments before he was converted to Christ. And that's because he didn't really understand who the Lord his God was. And 
it wasn't until that he heard the gospel of, or until he met Christ on the road to Damascus when he had Christ speak to him that his life was radically changed and he learned who his Lord God was and that was Jesus Christ and he became a faithful servant of Christ. And then from that point, his life was nothing but Christ. His burning desire was to know Christ and the power of his resurrection And he was a Christian at a time when being a Christian wasn't an easy thing, especially if you were a loud proponent of the gospel. Uh, He suffered a great deal of persecution because of his his preaching in the church. Uh, You can read about that, what Paul experienced in the book of Acts. There's a lot, of course, about his life there. And then you can get a summation of the trials and troubles that he went through in 2 Corinthians where he talks about the perils that he endured for the cause of Christ. And then in the second letter to Timothy, Paul said, remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer even unto bonds, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure all things for the elect's sakes, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And so there you have the cause of the troubles that Paul went through, and you have the goal of that uh, goal of, of Paul. The cause is the uh, teaching of the cross of Christ and of his resurrection. And the goal for Paul is that those who had been chosen by God would hear the gospel and they would believe. And so we would say that Paul was fully dedicated to that calling. He was chosen as an apostle, and what he wanted to do was to to deliver this gospel that he had received from Christ. There were other people, just like we have today, that need to hear the gospel, and Paul's burning passion was to give that to people who needed to know Christ. But despite all of the efforts that Paul put into that and the persecutions that he went through, there were many people that did not believe that Paul was actually called by Christ. And they didn't believe that the gospel that he preached was actually one that was given to him by God. And they didn't think that Paul had the authority to speak for Christ. And certainly, he didn't have the authority to say that Old Testament laws had been set aside and those things have nothing to do with our salvation. Paul said that the old ordinances of the laws had been had been passed or had passed away, and he spoke about this in Colossians chapter two. He says, "And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross." And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. And when Paul preached, there were people that said he is preaching his own gospel. He has a made-up gospel. It's not consistent with what Jesus taught, and therefore Paul has no gospel, and he's not an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so we have this section in Galatians that is in part an autobiography of Paul in which he proves that the gospel is not his own, but it was in fact God's gospel. Now sometimes he says my gospel, like that passage we read just a moment ago in Second Timothy, but he doesn't mean that in any kind of sense that he's the one that, that made this gospel up or invented it, but he means that it's one and the same with Jesus Christ, that he taught what Christ taught and he called it his gospel or my gospel as opposed to the gospel that others were teaching that was not a true gospel. Well, we've looked at Paul's defense of apostleship 
in the first series of messages when we first started in Galatians. And we learned in that part that Paul had a lot of detractors during his time, and he also has them today. I mean, there are certain doctrines that Paul taught that really go down hard. Peter said that much of what Paul wrote was hard to understand. And I don't think that he meant that it was hard for him to understand, but he meant that the only way that you're really going to understand what Paul says in some of these deeper portions of Scripture is that you must have Holy Spirit illumination. You have to have some guidance in this. And when I speak of Paul's doctrine, I'm not just talking about what he had to say about doctrines of grace, but there's also a lot of teaching that Paul gave on the family. There's much that he says about Christian qualifications. He has extensive sections about the second coming of Christ, and then especially this cardinal doctrine of the faith, which is the method by which we are justified before God. And that is the chief battleground that we find here in Galatians. It's the same as Job's age-old question, how should man be just with God? And so there's a fight over this, and Galatians and Romans are both strong defenses on this doctrine of justification by faith alone. And so these doctrines, being very unpopular and contrary to man's natural disposition, that's caused a lot of people in the past and many people today to say that Paul was simply wrong in what he taught. So some say that Paul perverts the gospel of Christ, that he's guilty of changing it. And that's what the Judaizers claimed here in the first part of Galatians. And as we look through the book, we'll see that, that uh, they claimed to know Christ. They claimed to know what Christ taught. And they thought that Paul was just some sort of Johnny-come-lately apostle and really didn't know what he was talking about. Well, while studying for these messages, I I came across something that I thought was very interesting, uh, some interesting facts about the early days of our country and what some of our founding fathers had to say about Paul and also about Jesus Christ. And what I'm about to tell you is utter heresy to the Christian right. I mean, there is a a great deal of angst over these things by uh, people who are convinced that all of the founders of our country were good, godly Christian men, and what they intended to do was bring us a Christian government. Now, if that's what they intended to do, if Christian government was at what they were after, then we could only say that according to some of the things that they, they said about Christ and the apostles, that they were really trying to build a government on a false Christianity and not the Christianity of the Bible. Now, I know that sounds like heresy to, to right-wingers and many of us that were fundamental Baptists. I mean, this is really not the, maybe the popular thing to say. And so before I tell you this, there are many pastors and churches that are seriously misguided about the virtues of our government. Now, there's some questions that we would need to ask. Uh, Did God protect our nation for religious freedom? I don't think there's any doubt about that. Of course he did. Did God's providence guide America in times past to become the greatest nation on the earth for the propagation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no question about that either. America has put out more missionaries and seen more people saved and and preached the gospel at more places than any other nation on the face of this earth at any time. And so we could certainly say that God's hand was in that. I have no doubt about that. Did God establish America as his nation for a righteous cause? And did he empower our leaders with truth so that America is God's chosen nation? Well, that's where it starts to go askew. Now things are 
getting a little messed up because the answer to those questions is no. America is not God's chosen nation. And America is a very wicked nation, in fact. And if America is still here when Jesus comes again, this will be one of the nations that will be one of the, one of the driving forces, I think, behind the Antichrist. See, the only righteous government that there is, is God's government. And that's, that government will come to this earth and it will engulf the entire earth when Christ comes as the rider on that white horse with the vesture dipped in blood. Then we'll have a perfect government. So I, I would say, you know, I, I believe in supporting our government because I believe that God ordains all governments. But I do not support the idea that our government is empowered for any righteous cause other than government itself. See, the gospel of Christ is the means of changing the world. And neither Obama or the most conservative Republican that ever get elected or that ever lived is ordained to do what the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is ordained to do. Now, did the founding fathers have a sense of importance of Scripture? They did. But there were many of them that looked on Scripture as merely a moral guide. So I want to quote to you some research here about uh, Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson was has always been sort of a hero of mine. I always like to study about Jefferson. I, I probably made at least, I think, five or six trips to Monticello where Jefferson lived. And uh, I've just always been interested in, in what Thomas Jefferson had to say. And he's considered in the top tier of American presidents, probably one of the two or three greatest presidents that we've had. Well, some time ago I was... Uh, reading from S. Lewis Johnson, and I've told you that he's one of my favorite preachers to read after, and I think he was a brilliant man and a brilliant student of God's Word, and he preached a sermon on this particular text that was called Paul, His Gospel, and Thomas Jefferson. And I thought that was an interesting title, but I want to quote to you some of the things that S. Lewis Johnson had to say in his research about what Thomas Jefferson had to say about Jesus and the apostles. So he begins this way. He says, Thomas Jefferson was the third president of the United States. He was the drafter of the Declaration of Independence. Many have considered him to be one of our greatest presidents. There is no question but that Mr. Jefferson was a weird and erratic theologian. He admitted that he was not a total follower of Jesus Christ. He said that Jesus took the side of spiritualism, to use his term, while he himself was a materialist. He admitted that Jesus preached the efficacy of repentance for forgiveness of sins, while he, Jefferson, required what he called a counterpoise of good works to redeem it. After these damaging admissions, the religious mountebank of Monticello, and that, if you don't know the word mountebank, that's a word that means a flamboyant deceiver. It means a, means a quack. You put a quack if you want to put it that way, a charlatan. So he says, after these damaging admissions by the religious mountebank of Monticello, uh, he added a few words about the gospel authors and especially the apostle Paul. He wrote in a letter to a man by the name of Mr. Short, and this is a quote from Jefferson, among the sayings and discourses imputed to him, meaning to Jesus, by his biographers, I find many passages of fine imagination, correct morality, and of the most lovely benevolence, and others, again, of so much ignorance, so much absurdity, so much untruth, charlatism, and imposture, as to pronounce it impossible that such contradiction should have proceeded from the same being. I separate, therefore, the gold from the dross. 
restore to him the former and leave the latter to the stupidity of some. And there we can thank Jefferson for giving Jesus his due. He'll restore to him the gold. Uh, from the dross. So he said, I separate there for the gold from the dross, restore to him the former, and leave the latter to the stupidity of some, the roguery of others of his disciples. And Johnson says, Mr. Jefferson is calling Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John stupid and rogues. The words that follow concerning the Apostle Paul, probably the most amazing of all, because after delivering himself of this diatribe against the apostles and the disciples who were earlier apostles of our Lord, this is Mr. Jefferson's assessment of the Apostle Paul. He says, of this band of dupes and impostors, Paul was the great Corypheus. That's a word that means he's the spokesman. He's the spokesman for the rest of them. That he's the great Corypheus and the first corrupter of the doctrines of Jesus. And Johnson goes on to say, one day we shall see who is corrupt and who is not corrupt because at the great white throne judgment, God will determine who is corrupt and who is not corrupt. And I have the conviction deep down within that the apostle Paul will be vindicated and Mr. Jefferson devastated by what happens then. Now the reason that I bring this up, Johnson goes on to point out that These views that Thomas Jefferson had were not original with him, but there were many in the American government at that time that had the same views that Thomas Jefferson did. And I bring it up again also because many people in the past, going all the way back to the time that the Apostle Paul first started preaching, had the same views of him, that he was a corrupter of the doctrines of Christ. But what you can see from this, from from this kind of quotation, is that from a theological point of view, you can't count what we consider many of our best bounding fathers, that they were Christians in the biblical sense of the word. And if you're not a Christian in the biblical sense of the word, you're not a Christian at all because that's what a Christian is. You have to be a Christian according to the Bible. So I think we're, we're fooling ourselves to think that we'd be so much better off if we return to the religion of our founding fathers. What we need to do is to return to the Bible. And what we need to do is to return to the Bible alone as our faith and practice and seek to win the world through the gospel and forget about having the American government be the enforcer of our religion. It's not up to the government to do what we're supposed to be doing. So the reason, again, I bring it up is because these great men like Thomas Jefferson called Paul a corrupter of Jesus' teachings, and in Paul's time, he was considered to be the same. That's the charge that we have here in Galatians chapter 1. That's what the Judaizers are saying. And they were... Uh, and what Paul does here in this section of Scripture is to prove that he is not the author of the gospel that he taught. And these verses give us a historical perspective of how Paul received this gospel, and it didn't come from a human source. This was given to him by God alone. Now, this evening, I want to consider for just a few minutes more this first point of our outline, which is the essential postulates from Paul's conversion, the essential postulates from Paul's conversion. In logic, a postulate is a statement that has to be accepted as true, and it becomes a basis for logical reasoning. And in the sense of this passage, in order for Paul to be considered an apostle of Jesus Christ, these postulates have to be true, or else all the other reasoning, all the other things he says about doctrine is lost. These things have to be true. And so Paul gives us these postulates, which I'll tell you in just a moment, 
and he and he argues for them along three lines of reasoning and we're going to start with the lines of reasoning next week and they all have something to do with an aspect of Paul's conversion it comes from an argument of what Paul was like before he was converted and then what happened when he was converted and then what he did after he became a Christian so that's how he's going to prove that the this gospel that he preached was God's gospel and not his own So we're going to start with this. If Paul is a true apostle of Jesus Christ, then these are the postulates that must be true. The first one is, the gospel is not his invention. The gospel is not his invention. Now I want to back up to the 10th verse, and here Paul says, For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. Now Paul is showing there, that if he was really trying to push a gospel that he invented, that he was not very wise in the way that he went about it. We read verses 8 and 9, and the tone of that is outrage. Paul makes no accommodation, or he's not amenable in any way to a compromise of what he taught, and he wasn't going to soothe over any kind of differences that he had in order to win people to his side. And so he's telling here, if I really wanted to persuade men... Would I give such a scathing rebuke? If I wanted to please men, would I speak in this way? Or would I tone things down in order to increase my popularity? You see, he so strongly enforces that what he maintains is truth and what they teach is a lie, that he says, if I try to alter what I know is the truth of Christ, then I can't be a servant. It's his gospel. I have no right to change it. And to change it is to do something that would disqualify me from being his apostle. So there's the first clue that Paul didn't invent this gospel, and that is he's inflexible. He's not going to waver, even though with that Jewish upbringing that he had, which we'll talk about later, it would have been much more natural for him to agree with the Judaizers. I mean, it's better for them if this is what he wants to do, if he wants to be an apostle and be recognized as such and be popular, it's better to take their position. But since their position is not Christ's position... He won't have none of it. And so you see in verses 11 and 12, he says, But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached to me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the gospel is not his invention because there was no man that told it to him. Now implied in that is that the gospel is not of human origin. And we'll see that as we go along. Um, He claimed that he didn't receive it at the hands of men, that his gospel started with God, so it is of divine origin. And in relation to that, he'll also show us that he didn't receive the gospel that is God's gospel by men. That's not who told him. So there is no human witness that explained this to Paul. And that's important because if there is nobody that explained it, then it means that it had to have come from God because where else would he get it? Now, we know the answer to the question, of course, because we know the history of Paul, that um, the road to Damascus is the answer to all of this. This is where he got the gospel. He got it directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. But if he says, I don't know, nobody ever spoke to me about this, or I don't, no one's ever told me about this, then it raises kind of a a little bit of a question, because if he's saying, I never heard about it before, I never knew anything about it, It's a problem, because how is Paul going to know that this gospel is different from the Jews' religion? And why did he turn into a persecutor if he had no idea for the reason he was persecuting people? 
And wasn't Paul there when Stephen spoke to the Sanhedrin and gave his defense? And wasn't he there at the moment of death when Stephen cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit? And didn't Paul hear the testimony of believers when he went into their houses and took them out and took them to prison and then put them to death? See, Paul must have known a lot about the historical aspects of of Jesus Christ. And there are many people that know these things. I mean, there are people that know the facts. Many people can relate to facts about Jesus. And there's some that know more than you do about the history of him. And there's more that maybe know more than you than the Bible is literature and such things as that. But it's not facts that save people. Now, you have to know the facts, that's for sure. But it's not the facts that save. Paul knew facts. But he had a key ingredient that's missing See, all the facts put neatly in order don't constitute the gospel of Christ. For Paul, there is one key ingredient missing in all of this, and that is he was a typical Pharisee that rejected the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now, if he'd been present at the crucifixion, he would have been right there with the rest of them telling Pilate, Pilate, you need to seal up that tomb because... If the disciples come and steal the body of Jesus, we are dead ducks. How are we going to defend that if they come and steal his body? And then after the resurrection, he would have been right there with them to say, well, that's what did happen. His body was stolen, and that's why we can't find the body. So Paul would have been among those. He didn't understand the implications of Christ's death. He didn't believe the resurrection. And so what changed all of that? Well, it was the Damascus Road. It's when he met the living Christ on the Damascus Road. And there he realized the resurrection was true. And he was also uh, supernaturally overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit, changing his heart to make him a Christian. So it's not an argument to say that Paul knew facts about Jesus and the statement that he makes in verses 11 and 12 isn't true. Because he'd never been taught the truth of the gospel in its entirety by any person. There was no soul winner that came to the Apostle Paul and sat down with him and said, here is what you need to believe in order to be saved. Here is the gospel. And then he led him in a prayer. And then Paul said, Lord, save me. There wasn't anybody like that. Except there was a soul winner. And it was the living Christ. Paul prayed no prayers. Paul made no decisions. He was conquered by Christ. And he received truth directly from him. And so before... If you knew Paul, before that happened, you would ask him, well, was Jesus virgin born? And he would give you the wrong answer. And you'd ask him, was Jesus God incarnate? And he would give you the wrong answer. And if you said, did he arise from the dead? He'd give you the wrong answer. Did he atone for sin? Wrong answer. He didn't know anything about being saved. And so it wasn't until he saw that brilliant light that shone down from heaven and Jesus Christ appeared that's when this deepest conviction concerning Christ made a huge impression on him. Christ appeared to him personally, and that changed everything. And that's the first postulate. This has to be true. He did not invent the gospel. Secondly, the gospel, this is another postulate, the gospel is not by others' tradition. Now, we're going to cover this in more detail as we go through the verses, but Paul shows in these arguments that he did not receive what he knew about the gospel from the tradition of the church. It didn't come from the apostles because he didn't know any of them. He didn't know any of them personally. He never sat in the meeting of a church. In fact, whenever a church heard that Paul was anywhere around, what they would do is hightail it in the opposite direction. 
because they knew they would be persecuted if Paul showed up. So he wasn't in a meeting of the church. He, he didn't learn any of this from, from, a, a, from the church tradition. Nobody from the church taught him. So when people see Paul coming, they thought, well, the profession of faith that he made was just a ruse. What Paul wants to do is to find more Christians and put them to death. So there is no real conversion. And then he certainly didn't get the gospel or what he knew about it from his regular compadres. By that I mean the Jews that he hung out with. They hated Christianity as much as he did. He was trained in entirely different tradition. He was right there on board with everything that the Pharisees were teaching. He was in agreement with all these hundreds of laws that they had added and said, this is the way that you're saved. All of those things the Pharisees were famous for, Paul was right there in the middle of it all. So he didn't know Christ by tradition, and he's going to prove that in verses 13 and 14 and also verses 17 to 24. So that's another critical part of the argument. The gospel that he preached was not received by tradition, and so not having any contact with anyone that could pass it along to him, he couldn't have got it any other way except that it came from Christ. So it has to be of divine origin. There's no other way that he could know it. And then thirdly, there's a positive postulate, and this one has to be true, and all the others lead into this one, that the gospel is by divine revelation. Now, I've already stated that in one way by showing you that Paul was incorrect on all the questions concerning Jesus until he met him on the road to Damascus. Following his conversion, reading in Acts chapter 9, Paul went to Damascus. That's, he was on the road to Damascus when... Christ met him, and so he was told to go into Damascus, and there he would meet Ananias. And Ananias took Paul, and he baptized him. But there's nothing in that ninth chapter that says that Ananias taught him anything or told him anything except that he needed to be baptized, number one, and number two, that he was going to suffer for the cause of Christ. That's the extent of what Ananias told him. But when you read that ninth chapter, you find that the very next thing that Paul is doing right after he gets baptized is that he's in the synagogue and he's preaching the gospel of Christ. Now let me ask you something, or tell you something I should say. I don't want to get up to preach unless I've spent some time studying, unless I've done some reading after other good men of God that have, when what they've said about Scripture, you know, it's a fool who would say, well, we don't need to listen to what anybody has to say. We don't need to read. We don't need commentaries. We don't need any of this stuff because we can figure it all out by ourselves. If that was true, then there would be not a word spoken in Scripture about pastors and teachers. There would be nothing said about instruction from the church. You see, these things that we have, the books that we have, commentaries and so forth, those are things that are written by pastors, most of them were, by pastors and their compilations of their sermons that have been turned into commentaries. And so the most valuable books that I have outside of the Bible in my office are the commentaries things that are written by good godly men. And whenever you come to hear me preach, you know what you're listening to? Commentary. This is my commentary on the scripture. And so we could never pretend that we're set, we're good to go, we don't need anybody to teach us. So what makes us think that the Apostle Paul could do otherwise? How did he get up in the synagogue and begin to preach the gospel of Christ? Where did he get the knowledge? How is he going to make a proper presentation of the gospel of Christ? He has none of this in his former training. 
The scribes and the Pharisees were notorious for skipping and missing everything in the Old Testament that had to do with Christ. It was Jesus who had to sit there with them and read from the scriptures and tell them, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. How did he get this knowledge? How do you get up and preach? How do you get up and do this if nobody to teach you? How did he do that? Well, he only didn't get it from the New Testament. There wasn't any New Testament. It hadn't been written yet. And then when it was written, he wrote most of it. So how did he do it? Where did he get the knowledge? Well, he says, verse 12, For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to wrap up our discussion tonight with just a couple of scriptures. Uh, two, well, actually, two in 1 Corinthians and one in 1 Thessalonians. And we'll see here how Paul knew what he knew. Now, the main thing he learned was the gospel. Isn't that right? And that's what the subject is here. How does he know this gospel? And that's the argument in Galatians. He learned the gospel from God. 1 Corinthians 15, verse number 1. Moreover, brethren... I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures." Now, those verses contain the core components of the gospel. Christ died according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose again according to the scriptures. Now, do you notice what he said in verse 3? For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which also I received. That is your first statement or a statement from Paul about divine inspiration. That he received his knowledge of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ from Christ himself, from divine inspiration. Now we go over to chapter 11, and uh, this is a familiar passage, and this is Paul's teaching concerning the Lord's Supper. This is a scripture that we always, almost always read at communion, and we start at verse number 23. And verse 23 says, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. Well, how did Paul know what happened at the Last Supper? Was he there? Did he watch Jesus break the bread and pour the cup? How did he know all of this? Well, he tells us, for I have received of the Lord. Now, I don't know when he received it. It might have been part of the whole thing that was going on on the road to Damascus. We'll talk uh, later on in the last message about how Paul went into Arabia and the time that he spent there. Maybe that's where he received this information. I don't know. I know it wasn't the apostles that told him. He said, I received it from the Lord. And so his knowledge of Scripture came directly from God, taught by Jesus Christ. Then let me read one more Scripture. We'll be through. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 and 2. Furthermore, then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. For ye know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. So the commandments that Paul taught in the church, where did he get those? 1 Thessalonians 4 goes on. It talks about sanctification. It speaks there about honesty and fidelity. It talks about brotherly love. So where did Paul get the information? He says, for ye know 
what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. And so these, these are the postulates that have to be accepted in order for us to believe Paul concerning his apostleship and this right that he has to set aside Old Testament law and say that has nothing to do with the way that you're saved. You're saved by your faith in Jesus Christ alone, plus and minus anything, nothing, nothing, nothing adds to that. So we have to accept these things. The gospel is not his invention. The gospel is not by others' tradition. The gospel is by divine revelation. And so we can trust Paul on it. And he'll prove it to us. He has these ironclad arguments that are drawn out by the circumstances of his conversion. And if these postulates are true, then we have no choice but to deny what Jefferson said. Paul was not the first corrupter of the doctrines of Jesus. Instead, Paul was the greatest elucidator of the things that Jesus said. So here's what we need to do. We need to let Jefferson teach politics and let Paul teach theology. And let's don't mix those two up, get confused by them, keep them separate, keep them separate because politicians don't need to be teaching theology. And I think preachers that are teachers of theology don't need to be talking about too much politics. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great blessings that you give us. Lord, we thank you so much for this country that we live in for the way that you've blessed us, for the way that you've allowed us the freedom to preach the gospel of Christ. Lord, don't let us be confused about what our job is and what government's job is. We do want to see our leaders do what's right. We want to pray for them. But it's not the, the purpose of government to do what the church is supposed to do. No, we don't need the, the government to enforce our religion we we have a kingdom that's coming and that's one we expect that's going to be lived and be governed with perfect righteousness and that's what we look forward to we pray lord that you would bless our leaders and that you would help them to understand the gospel of christ and they would do what's right according to scripture and lord help us to pray for them all the time that they would do this and we would have a better government that we have and one that more recognizes that you are the true ruler of all the ruler of heaven and earth. Bless us now, Lord. We thank you for the opportunity to meet together and discuss your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.